Hello and welcome to Jamming Digital, which offers insights, analysis and commentary on all things digital in Brussels and beyond. My name is Evelina Kurgonaite. I am a seasoned Brussels Bubble Insider, a former journalist and a digital policy enthusiast. Good day and welcome. Today I am talking to Professor Leslie Chu about the research she has done on fake news dissemination on social media. Welcome, Leslie. Oh, great. Thank you so much for inviting me, Evelina. It's a pleasure to be here. You are a professor of economics, a graduate in mathematics and economics with highest honors from the University of California, Berkeley. You also hold PhD in economics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, better known as the MIT. And you have been with the Occidental College in Los Angeles since 2005. I understand that your primary fields of interest are industrial organization, which explores the behavior of firms, and applied econometrics, which uses data and statistical tools to evaluate outcomes of government policies. Personally, I was most intrigued to discover your recent research, which focuses on consumer search and firm competition on the internet. In particular, you examine the business practices of search engines and social media sites, and that's exactly why I have invited you, expecting that your research could be interesting to the listeners of this podcast. Just a couple of months ago, in December, the European Commission published its legislative proposal for the so-called Digital Services Act, which aims to regulate online platform accountability for how they manage uh, that type of content as fake news. And the Commission has also announced the European Democracy Action Plan, which also targets disinformation. And you have done empirical research on dissemination of fake news on social media together with Professor Tucker, and I'm very excited to hear more about it. Could you briefly outline what the research was about and what it focused on? So my co-author, Catherine Tucker, and I, we have a paper that examines the role of advertising in the dissemination of false news stories about childhood vaccines. And in particular, we're studying whether a ban on advertising by fake news publishers can curb the sharing of fake news articles on Facebook. And what we find in our study is that after Facebook's ban on advertising by fake news sites, the sharing of fake news articles on Facebook dropped significantly by 75% compared to Twitter. However, after the ban, what we also find is that the fake news continues to persist also through non-advertised channels such as Facebook groups. And what triggered your research in this? Why did you decide to investigate these questions? So our interest was really triggered by the 2016 U.S. presidential election. And it was around that time that a lot of observers were commenting on whether fake news played a role in the election outcome. And after the election, there was a flurry of activity in the news media discussing you know, whether and how platforms like Facebook should curb misinformation. 
And in fact, it was right around that time that Facebook undertook, you know, a really major policy change to combat fake news by really banning advertising by fake news publishers. And this certainly grabbed attention um, because here was an ad-supported platform banning advertising in an attempt to halt misinformation. And so was that the reason why your research focused on Facebook in particular? Why Facebook? Why not some other social media platform? You also mentioned Twitter in passing. Yes, we did. And so here we were just very opportunistic. Uh, So we studied Facebook because at the time, Facebook was the social media platform that had enacted the advertising ban. And if Twitter had had the ad ban, uh, we would have studied Twitter. And basically, the ban on the ad provides what economists call a natural experiment. So it's almost like running an experiment because on one hand, we can see how the sharing of fake news changes on Facebook, which had the advertising ban. And then we can compare it to Twitter, which at the time did not have the ban. And the nice thing is that the setting worked out really well for our study because Facebook and Twitter are among the top social media sites in the U.S. And over half of users on both platforms get their news from that social media site as opposed to other sources like a news site or a newspaper or television. I guess that might be true for other parts of the world as well. It may vary a little, mm-hmm. but it's, it's true that... People do source a lot of information through social media nowadays. And as part of your research, you also looked into statistics as well as studies by other scholars on misleading health information on the internet, such as how people use social media for health information in particular, and to what extent information found via social media affects the way people go about their health, including vaccination. Can you share any highlights on, of what you found in this respect? Yeah, and what we found were two main things. The first was really how much people use social media to find health information. And the second thing we learned from the literature was how difficult that it can be for people to identify misinformation when it comes to health issues. And so for that first point is that, you know, lots of people use social media sites for health information. There are some survey estimates that show 30 to 40 percent of U.S. consumers use social media for healthcare information. And, you know, not only do they use, you know, social media sites to look up information, but people actually report that what they find on the social media platform actually changes or shapes the health decisions that they make. And the second point that we found is that there is, in fact, several studies in the health and medical literature that find that consumers really struggle when they're trying to evaluate the credibility and the accuracy of health information online. And in fact, there have been some experimental studies that find that exposure to information that is critical of vaccination can lead to stronger anti-vaccine beliefs. And studies speculate that Maybe it's because, you know, individuals have difficulty evaluating or don't consider the credibility of the source. And it's really for these two reasons that, you know, people are using social media for health information and that it's shaping their decisions and that it's difficult to really understand health information that public health officials are really expressing worry about how fake news can influence um, public health. It's really quite scary to listen to those figures if you think about it. A third, or actually more than that, up to 40% of people look for information on something so important as one's health via social media. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and health is just one of those topics where it can be overwhelming, right? Unless you're a health professional to really figure out, you know, how, how do I assess this information? What does it mean? How credible is it? Now, turning to the sort of more empirical part of your research. So you explore fake news sharing in Facebook groups in particular. And I think it would be interesting to hear from you why groups and why not, for example, individual posts by users certain follower numbers and what kind of groups you looked at, any of a certain type or certain size, and how did you find them in the first place, these, these various groups that you put into your sample, and how did you decide which groups to include into your research? Yes, yeah, so we looked at public groups on Facebook, um, mainly for the reason that you know, you can find top anti-vaccination groups through a simple search on the site. And we also thought that groups might be an interesting setting because this is an environment where users are sharing common interests, for example, a stance against vaccines. So it may be a natural environment where fake news could propagate or be shared. And so was there any kind of groups that were anti-vaccine or was there, did you decide that it has to be of a certain size, for example, to be included Oh, yeah. So we looked at the top 20 um, anti-vaccine uh, public groups. And that was mainly because of a data a data constraint. And what kind of parameters in relation to these groups or in relation to the sharing of fake news did you explore in your analysis? And so our main goal was to really observe whether a news article was posted and whether it was shared. And this data occurred after the Facebook advertising ban. And we were just trying to see empirically, looking at the data, um, does fake news continue to propagate? And what did you discover? Can you share highlights of what that data revealed? Yeah, so we found two main things. The first was that after the ad ban on fake news, that there was still a significant amount of fake news articles that were continuing to be shared through the Facebook groups. It was still quite active. And the second thing we found that was that a common response uh, within the Facebook public group was when someone would post a news article, then others would say reshare the post with others. And in other words, the Facebook groups, the users were amplifying or propagating the fake news articles even after the advertising ban occurred. Is this the concept known as the echo chamber? Yes, exactly. So this idea of the echo chamber is just a situation where an individual only encounters beliefs or opinions that match their own. So in other words, the existing reviews are reinforced or echoed by others, right? They aren't really challenged or being considered alternative ideas. And some observers had speculated that, you know, the Facebook groups, especially those that are organized around a particular issue or cause, could have this feature, right? It can imagine like-minded individuals forming a group and then just sharing the information that reinforces their existing opinions. And you mentioned also that you examined the role of advertising in the dissemination of fake news in your research. So one thing is, you know, when people share information 
in, in a group and there is this echo chamber effect potentially. It's one type of dissemination, right, of, of fake news. But then to what extent the advertising also play a role? I understand that this may have been the first time anyone researched this. And what kind of data did you compile and analyze for the purpose of this assessment? Right. So as you pointed out, Evelina, there's two main channels, which is this organic sharing by users and groups, and then also this advertised channel. And for the advertised channel, we used data from a search engine, Hoaxy, that was developed by the University of Indiana. And a really nice thing about this search engine is that it uses Twitter and Facebook's API to collect and report the number of shares of fake news articles on Facebook and Twitter. And the search engine allows us to type in a keyword search. So let's say, you know, MMR, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. And then it will pull a list of fake news articles related to the keyword. And then we'll also see how many shares the article received on Facebook and Twitter. And what did you do with that data? How would an economist quantify an effect of advertising of news sharing? In layman's terms, please. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Um, So we looked at the sharing of the fake news articles on Facebook, and we see how they changed before and after the advertising ban. And then we compare that change on Facebook to the change on Twitter, which at the time had no ban. And our idea was that the difference between Facebook and Twitter would measure the effect of advertising on this new sharing. And it was really important to compare Facebook to Twitter because, you know, you could imagine that if we had only looked at Facebook, fake news sharing for vaccines could have changed over time for reasons other than the ad ban, right? Maybe these searches are seasonal, news articles or searches for certain vaccines could be more common during certain times of the year. So in other words, by comparing it to Twitter sharing, we can rule out other explanations. So that would have been my next question, but I wonder if you've already answered it, because what I I would have asked you is if there were factors you considered in your economic analysis. For example, some of these fake news articles may have been more popular than others, or they may have related to certain types of vaccines rather than others and, you know, drawing sort of different level of interest. But it sounds like that by doing that comparative analysis, you may have covered those aspects as well. Yes, but that's also a great question because there were other checks that we could have done with our analysis as well, too. So what was great about the search engine is we could also look at the same fake news article on Facebook and Twitter. So not only could we compare across the two social media platforms, but we could look for that same article, how it performed in terms of sharing on one platform versus the other. Another thing that we also looked at in our study was we tested whether the effect of the ban uh, was greater for early childhood vaccines. The idea is that fake news may focus more on vaccines where those who are responsible for the decision to vaccine the parents may be more likely to seek news and information. And so we do find that there is a stronger effect on the ban when we look at vaccines that occur in early childhood. So there is a larger decline in sharing of fake news articles on early childhood vaccines after the ban. So summing it up, what are the key takeaways from this research? And based on those conclusions, what would be your advice to the European Commission or indeed to any policy makers that are endeavoring to introduce regulation on social media platforms accountability for fake news? So we had two key takeaways from our study. And the first was that 
you know, that an advertising ban on fake news publishers can actually be quite effective at reducing the sharing of fake news. And in some sense, you know, it could be perhaps more straightforward to implement, could simply identify the fake news publishers and block them from submitting ads. So that's our first takeaway that, you know, advertising seems to be a very direct channel of curbing misinformation. And the second point is that, I mean, while an ad ban is effective, there is a significant amount of misinformation that exists organically through social media, through these non-advertised sources like friends and through groups. And this could truly be more challenging for policymakers to tackle. I think both from the sheer number of individuals, pages, and different groups to fact check. And also in the U.S., some commentators say that there could be tensions potentially with free speech. So really two takeaways that, you know, advertising could be a very straightforward way to approach it as a first pass. But the second point is tempering that, which is that there's just so much of this organic sharing that occurs. But do you have any advice on the back of it to policymakers? Our main part is really focused on the advertising as I would say is a more straightforward and easy way of shutting it down. But I think really the focus of our paper is just highlighting that it's this organic sharing of news, of fake news, that is really going to be harder to curb. And I think certainly there needs to be more research that's done in this area. Another point about the organic sharing of fake news is that there also has been a study that shows that misinformation spreads more quickly online than does factual information. So I'd say one policy could be, can you somehow counter misinformation through a campaign of accurate, verified information? And I would say there's a challenge there too, simply because you know studies have shown that misinformation can spread much more quickly. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure I have any policy recommendations other than to point out some challenges of perhaps some proposed, you know, proposed ways of dealing with it. The COVID-19 pandemic, unfortunately, remains very much upon us. And the amount of disinformation related to the coronavirus via online sources has just been overwhelming. And now that governments are doing what they can to roll out vaccination programs across different parts of the world, we can also observe literally a tsunami of anti-vaccine fake news on social media, which seems to have an effect on people because it is being reported that people in different countries choose not to be vaccinated. Do you have any additional insights to share in this context based on your research on on the phenomenon of uh, anti-vaccine fake news on social media? Is there any silver lining? Well, what I can say is that, you know, given the urgency of COVID-19, I believe it, there seems to be a renewed focus on platforms curbing misinformation. I think since our study, social media platforms like Facebook have enacted further policy changes aimed directly at organic sharing because of the COVID pandemic. You know, I would say the first ban that we studied related to ads um, by fake news publishers were targeting publishers. Um, however, in the past year, platforms like Facebook have added additional policy changes where pages and individual users will be banned for sharing misinformation related to COVID. 
Um, in fact, I read online that you know Facebook explicitly will list certain claims about COVID that will lead to a removal of a page or user from the platform. So, I mean, what I can say is that there seems to be greater recognition that you know it's not enough just to curb advertising and that organic sharing happens a lot and that you know greater efforts are needed to identify and curb it. And whilst we had COVID. In relation to the coronavirus, you've also done other really interesting research, namely on whether income inequality affects to what extent people can self-isolate. And could you share the key highlights from that research? Sure. My co-author, Catherine Tucker, and I also have another study that examines how access to high-speed internet affects an individual's ability to self-isolate during the pandemic. And there is, you know, popular debate about how income can affect an individual's ability to self-isolate. And our study finds that, you know, much observed inequality is explained by whether individuals have access to high-speed internet in their homes, which is in turn related to income. So in other words, it's precisely because high-income households can afford high-speed internet that they can shield themselves from the pandemic by staying at home. Perhaps, you know, either through working at home or avoiding in-person shopping. In other words, it's really about the digital divide, right? Those who have access and affordability to internet and technology versus those who don't. This is really interesting. Thank you so much for telling me and the listeners of this podcast about all this incredible research you have done. Thank you so much, Leslie. And thank you so much, Evelina, for inviting me and giving a platform to really discuss all these important issues. 